Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. I'm very pleased to have a rabbi on with us who played a big role in, uh, in Anthony Kosh's uh, conversion to Judaism, which was a very long process that we all heard many heard about through social media and, uh, and those of us that are close with him. Uh, I'm really excited about this because the Jewish faith obviously played a big role in my upbringing as a Christian. I, I, I memorized large portions of the Torah growing up and uh, not quite to the level that uh, they do in, say, um, a, po- a Potok novel like uh, My Name is Asher Lev, but like I, I, I got there, right? I, I did a lot of a lot of memorization, um, and I actually have never had a long conversation with a rabbi, so I'm really excited about this. Uh, so, Rabbi, why don't you share a little bit about yourself, and then obviously what we ask everyone is, what do you love about this country? Uh, I, I, I've been, uh, I'm an American uh, by birth. I'm a Canadian uh, by citizenship. I've been living in Canada since 1981. Uh, the last, uh, since 86 here in Montreal, I've been rabbi of the same synagogue since before you guys were born. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, I love this country and, uh, I, I'm involved in the Jewish community stuff, uh, uh, you know, dealing with the issues on the Jewish agenda, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, social services, anti-Semitism, you know, uh, the stuff that you, everyone would assume is part of the Jewish agenda. Yeah, that's uh, and you come from a from a line of uh, rabbinical uh, yeah. teachers. Oh, you, you can see my my grandfathers are behind me. Those two pictures are were both rabbis. My late father was a rabbi. My father's five brothers were all rabbis. His two brothers in law were rabbis. My wow, wow. <laughs> my, my mother's three brothers were rabbis. My two brothers, my two brothers are rabbis. My two brothers in law are rabbis. And my two sons are rabbis. Yeah. <laughs> so is, is, is there anyone who isn't? Like, is there yes, one I had black one sheep? Uncle, I had one uncle who wasn't. My mother's sister's late husband uh, was not a rabbi. He was my only non-rabbinic uncle. He was instead an arms dealer. Oh, well. Oh, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> if you have to I'm naturally. Talking, so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things he did in business, he, for some reason, he was the... The sole American licensee for the Uzi submachine gun. <laughs> so, uh, so wow! Again, yeah, so I had it's either rabbis or arms dealers, right? You know, and and only one arms dealers and a lot of rabbis. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to talk about. Uh, we've had some uh, Muslims on this show. We've had Christians to talk about their faith, but I want to talk about how you see your faith interacting with your Canadianness and how it's unique, perhaps, to other places in the world. I'm not sure it's it's unique. I, I you know, there's certainly many unique features uh, uh, to Canadian life, to Canadian social life, and political life. Uh, but you know, I I always look to the Jewish tradition and continue to be amazed by the Jewish tradition and how radical and revolutionary it is. All these years later, I mean, we've been, you know, this week is Passover. We've been celebrating this holiday for uh, three thousand three hundred thirty-three years. And those ideas that we celebrate on Passover are still uh, radical today and revolutionary today, and unfortunately not as pervasive as we would hope them to be. The appreciation of freedom, uh, of human dignity, of understanding that you know basic rights uh, exist 
not because any legislature uh, voted on it, but because we're creating the image of God. And that's a bedrock foundation to all democracies. It is ignored today at our own peril, but that, that's where the foundation comes from. I mean, I know it's long before you guys were born. It was what happened when I was a little kid. But when uh, John F. Kennedy was uh, gave his inaugural address, one thing he reminded Americans of, he said the following. He said, the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Yes, that's, yes. That's, that's basic to the U.S. Constitution. And the foundation of all Western democracy is that government is limited because people are created by the image of God. That is the limitation on governmental power. And uh, and that's a bedrock, you know, uh, uh, again, part of, you know, part of any any liberal, uh, any liberal uh, view of the world. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I actually want to go into this a little bit because my, my dad's a minister. So I have like a, a, a deep relationship with faith. And I've noticed that a lot of people like, oh, I'm an atheist or I don't believe in God. And and that's OK. Obviously, everyone has the freedom to do that. But I think the issue is, as David Foster Wallace said, you're going to worship something like you're going to in your life. You will find something to worship. That's what humans do. Do you how what do you think is being worshipped right now? I'll just I'll throw out my take very briefly, which is I think we have entered into a kind of orthodoxy around uh, political correctness, which we now call social justice warriors, that kind of stuff. And then the second thing that seems to be worshipped right now is uh, a rampant individualism that is obsessed with personal identity, like personal identity above all else. I, I, mean, <clears throat> I, I agree with both those points. The, uh, you know, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, and I paraphrase, uh, that when people abandon religion, it's not replaced by nothing. No, no. <laughs> it's, it's not replaced. And again, you see it almost comically. I mean, I, and again, I don't want to, uh, I, 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 I was cautioned not to denigrate, but I, we, you see it really in the, in the response over the past summer uh, to the horrific murder of, a, uh, of an African-American where, and, and more than one, uh, where you have these acts of public penance and kneeling and, you know, and, and signaling one's own virtue. And it, it, be, it takes on a religious uh, overtone. And then you get the worst aspects of religious life incorporated in that with the excommunications or the canceling that goes on. That means there are some basic human instincts that had this, many times in history very healthy expressions in religious life, sometimes unhealthy expressions in religious life. And now you have them in, express the political life. And, uh, you know, the, uh, and, and that's not a good thing. No, <laughs> you know, pol no. Pol politics shouldn't be that important. You know, who you vote for shouldn't be that important. And whether in the States, whether it was a, a Trump or someone else, and we can all maybe agree on, uh, uh, on some of the deficiencies of the people we talk about, but it shouldn't be that important. Government shouldn't be that important. But when the other structures in society begin to disintegrate, whether it's the community, whether it's the church, whether it's even family, God forbid, you, you replace it with something else. And politics be, has become, for many, the, sing, the single most important. In other words, it determines who you associate with. It determines who, you, who in your family you embrace. It's not right. I mean, politics shouldn't be that important. But it has become too important for way too many people. Because of the void left by the, uh, you know, by, by the abandonment of other things. 
Yeah, Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, um, you know, we've killed God, and everyone's like, oh, God is dead, and that's some kind of victory phrase. And then he says, we'll never wa- wipe up the blood. Right? Yeah. We'll never wipe up the blood. And I think we're witnessing that. But, okay, and I completely agree with you. One of the things that I say to people a lot is, do you know where they have almost 99% voter turnout? Rwanda. You know why? Because politics really matters there. And uh, you know what I want to say is that I've always said this, you know, people talk, bemoan the low voter turnout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great thing. Me too, me too. <laughs> no, low voter turnout is not apathy. It's not. Low voter turnout means, number one, I know who's ever going to get elected. My life won't change all that much. Exactly. And, and really, and, government should be boring. Like you said, it yeah, should just be well-managed. I mean, a country like Israel, which is too often in conflict and the division between the political parties are intense and it can literally determine, you know, at least, you know, before things got better, you know, the fate of your family, life and death is high turnout because the issues are life and death. Life and death. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No issue in Canada really is life and death. I mean, it, it may be embellished by some to be called life and death, but we're talking here about, you know, issues on the margins, you know, what percentage of taxes we're talking about, you know, we're, we're talking about really, and so it's not apathy. It's basic contentment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what it is. And that's a healthy thing. You know, you're right. In, in countries and, and strife or where they're compelled to, there's a huge voter turnout. Yeah. When, <laughs> because when, like when you people, said, it matters too much. When people get up in the morning on election day and say, you know, listen, my life's going to be okay no matter who gets in. That's not a bad thing. No, no. <laughs> it's maybe a little bit of a bad thing for people who want power, right? Because they're trying. It, it, it makes it more difficult. But honestly, I think that's one of the best things about being Canadian. I want to go back into this, what you said a little bit earlier about uh, the disintegration of community. Uh, on, on the flip side, what is the value of community from your perspective? And how have you seen it enrich uh, your life, but the lives of people around you? You know, the... Um there are different models in history for this. You know, uh, there are some societies and cultures that celebrate rugged individualism, right? You know, the cowboy on the range, right? And then there are societies that are, uh, that, that represent an opposite ideal, you know, where, where, where it's almost a breach of etiquette to stand out too much. Right, right. right. Okay. And, and the question is, you know, where we come down on that and, and, and what it does for us. In Judaism, we really do come down right right smack in the middle. I mean, uh, we, we you know, I'm a child of a tradition that taught that if you take one life, it's as if you take and destroy the entire world, that every single human being is created in the image of God, that the Talmud has a story where, you know, one rabbi asks another, what blessing do you make when you see 600,000 people together? And the blessing he said is, thank you, God, who has made all these people, but they're all different one from another. In other words, when you see that many people together, the first instinct is to erase their humanity and individualism. And we're called upon to remember that individualism, which is so important about the value and the sanctity of every life. On the other hand, I'm also the child of a tradition that teaches the absolute imperative of community, right? Where... We, in the Passover Seder the other night, we actually declare it as heresy if you disassociate yourself from uh, from community. It's a it's a bizarrely unique idea that heresy is not just about belief in God, 
It's about belief in community. Oh, I love that. Okay, so give us some examples of how you've seen community just come around someone when they needed it most. Because I think so often, I'll give you an example. My uh, grandma's just turned ninety-one, and she lives with my aunt and uncle. And she's just and and they and then my cousin lives with them as well, with her husband and three kids. Right, and it's such a beautiful home, just like a home should arguably be. You've got four generations. And one of the things that I've noticed is the way she talks about her friends are in, who are in old folks' homes, right? And she's like, "This is she's like they're living tragic lives compared to me." Now, what, one way or the other, not everyone can you know live with their family. I'm not making a statement on that, but I look at how she gets to spend the last years of her life. Uh, she's Zach's grandma too, and I'm like, "That's community." So, like, I'm sure you have many examples of that. In- oh, you know the the families that are blessed with the opportunity to do that. Uh, it changes everything. It changes everything. Yeah, maybe you have a little less privacy, but it it changes everything. It changes a, a, a child is raised knowing where they've come from and, and and knowing so many important lessons of life that are never articulated but are implicit in day to day life. You know, lessons about resilience, lessons about family loyalty, lessons about just who you are and where, where your identity comes from. And where you don't know where your identity comes from, you end up looking sometimes in all the wrong places. And a family like that is, is the bedrock. You know, people talk a lot about, you know, the pathologies of urban life and, and crime that happens. And, and we're not allowed as a society anymore to comment on the, on the choices that people have made over the generations that have led to this kind of a breakdown. It's considered, you know, highly inappropriate to do so. But the reality is we all know it. We all know that the number one cause of poverty, we know what that is. We know that it has to do with family structure. We know that. And uh, uh, yet we're not allowed to say it. And we're not allowed to encourage it. You know, we're not, we're not allowed to. And, uh, uh, and, and, and we're considered retrograde, you know, dinosaurs, if we do, you know. And, but we know that. We know what a healthier life looks like, where people find their sense of comfort and identity within a community, within a church, within a synagogue, within a family. That you, you also here's something else that people don't understand. You know, where does someone get a sense of dignity and purpose? In life? Yeah, yeah. So, so if all you have is your job, which may be wonderful, but maybe not so wonderful, right? In the old days, right? What did that mean? It meant, all right, you were a church elder, even if though you were running a failed hardware store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was a place where you were important, where you where you, where you were valued. If all if you don't have any of that, there's nothing that balances or cushions, you know, the blows of normal life. And there are everybody's life has blows. Some certainly much more severe than others. And there was a balance to life. You know, yeah, you didn't have uh, great success, you know, in you know in in in, in your profession or or your job, but you had a family. In a large family, people relied on you, right? And people depended on you, and you were respected within that family. Both as a mother, as a father, as a son and daughter, there was a place where you found comfort, right? And for too many people, that's lacking today. And uh, and so you have a lot of lonely people, which is an absolute tragedy. I mean, the only psychological statement made in the entire Bible that I'm aware of, and I stand to be, and I, I you don't want to correct me, please do so. The only psychological statement I'm aware of in the Bible is 
it is not good for people to be alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they they got that one out of the way out of the way right off the top. Yeah, it's <laughs> right, not right. good for man I to mean, be alone. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's the only time. I mean, they, they, you know, we don't. You know, there's nothing there about self esteem. There's nothing there about anything else. It just it's not good to be alone. That's not. So when you ask about community, you know, whether you're a scientist and consider it part of our, I don't know what it is. We are not made to be alone. We need to share. And COVID has certainly reminded us of that. Oh, it is has it ever? It is not good. <laughs> it is we not are, good. We are social beings. We are. I mean, I know that, you know, I, I pray every morning in the synagogue and within the few, few months we were completely closed. I would, you know, see, you know, hear from people that how distressing it was. And again, we're talking about brief prayers. We're talking about coming in the morning for half an hour and in the evening for about 20 minutes. But with the day we reopened, the eagerness just to see someone, just, yeah. to, just to talk to someone else, even if it was at six feet different and through a mask, just to be able to talk and connect with someone. That's the normal way of life. I mean, I, I, listen, we're on Zoom now and without it, you know, I, I don't know what COVID would have looked like without FaceTime, Zoom and Microsoft Teams. I'm trying to get, we'll get endorsements for all the companies. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess I left out Google Chat. Whatever it is, whatever mechanism you use, right? WhatsApp video, whatever one, whatever platform you're using. Thank God. I mean, it's a pale, you know, comparison to the real thing. But do you imagine going through COVID without this tech? No, <laughs> no. I, I honestly, I, I want to go into this a little bit because everyone seems to be talking about mental health and caring about mental health and mental. Obviously, so important. It's a pillar in Aaron's, you know. Pl- uh, platform for the next election yet literally solitary confinement is used as torture it is it is it is a form of torture a punishment and we're acting like we're acting like oh we just we, we're just gonna get through this we just have to do it again and again and again and honestly I, i'm watching my friends and even at my times myself go insane no listen uh you know you know, especially teenagers. I don't, I don't know if you have any, any, any contact with teenagers, but teenagers, I mean, this one. And, and you got to give, you know, I, I think the premier of Quebec a lot of credit for insisting the schools stay open, at least to, to, to the degree that they are. And, and, and that's vitally important. I mean, we know kids don't get sick from COVID. No, exactly. There's a lot of statistics to back that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, I mean, I actually, you follow the science. They don't get sick. Yeah, of course, there are rare cases. Of course, there are. There are rare cases of, you know, uh, of course, are and they're tragic. And and again, but in all, in all of life, we, we, you know, you do accept risk. And uh, and the idea that you can create a completely risk-free environment. And, and the idea, I sometimes feel that those who lead lives where they're able to continue working, whether remotely or whatever, don't always understand the impact of the policies they advocate for on those who don't and can't work remotely, right? Who can't continue to connect with people and still, you know, and, and still play a, a, a role in society, a vital role in society by being productive and creative. And and and, and the schools, especially, it's it, it it it's just not healthy. And, and again, you know, I grew up at a time where people would call, still call themselves "I'm the child of depression of the depression," right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These kids are going to be the children of COVID the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, and, they and, totally and, are. And, and it's going to leave scars. And 
People need each other. People need to be with each other, especially adolescents, because they're messed up already. Yeah, they're just little <laughs> hormone bags just wandering honest, the earth. <laughs> completely nuts. I mean, they're completely nuts already. And uh, oh, I love and, that. And, and now, and, and now you got to put this on them. I mean, it's not right. It's just not right. So you you arrived in Montreal in eighty one. So you've 80, seen 80, yeah. you've seen some some insane changes. I would imagine. One of the things that really interests me that we haven't actually talked about with anyone on this podcast before, but I think it works really well with the community family thing that we're going on is how have you noticed young people dating has changed based on this transformation from the pre-digital to the digital age? And what impact do you think that's having on the development of families? I don't know. It's so confusing to me because on the one hand, you know, uh, communication is so easy. What I think has changed everything, of course, and I'm going to say what everybody else has said. And it's almost more geared again is, is the smartphone, how much you have in your palm and your hand every day. And but more, and, but what's really, in other words, the fact that people don't have an alone time anymore is 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 really dim. People need time to process. Right, a word I don't like because it just means think. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I don't know. I don't know what was wrong with the word think. <laughs> we needed the word process. I, I don't know what that means. Anyway, anyway, uh, anyway. So, but I digress. Anyway, so um, people need alone time, especially teenagers. And but let's be blunt. It's hard to be alone. Yes. You, have, you need to be alone. I know this is a complete contradiction to what we just said, but it's not. No. You need, you need a balance of life. And it's hard to be alone. You need to think about yourself and your own identity. It's hard to do. And if there's a way to avoid it, the kids will take it. And the smartphone is the way to avoid ever thinking. Yeah. In a deliberative way about your life, your priorities, your relationships. And and, and, and so the, this, the, the, the smartphone is a way to ever... Ever ha- is a way to avoid ever having to be completely alone because the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is check your 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 TikTok, Instagram, WhatsApp, and your text messages before you go to sleep. You're always in contact with everybody. There's not a moment of reflection. There's not a moment where you allow yourself to absorb the joy of your life or the pain of your life. There's not a moment for it. You're it, it's a drug to. I, I'll t- I'll give you an example. I'll tell you where I first saw this, and it hurt me so much. I, I got to tell you. I, I, I have in the past and hopefully in the future, I've taken groups of, uh, you know, last year of high school, groups of kids to Poland and Israel. Mm-hmm, we used to mm-hmm. the March of We show them, you know, the Jewish life in Poland before the war. We show them, of course, the addresses of its destruction. Then we go to Israel for a week. And in the old days, right? Right, right. When we started doing this in, like, say, in the 90s, right? Before the, everyone had a, a cell phone. You know, you pull away from a camp, which is, you know, you can't even imagine what. No, no. For reason, we pull out and there was complete silence on the bus. Right, we pull out of the camp near Lublin and drive back to Warsaw. Throughout the entire trip, you couldn't hear a word on the bus because the kids were sitting there and they were thinking. Maybe they were writing something, you know, in a journal, but they were thinking. They were by themselves in their own little world, thinking. Today, when they pull out of those places, they're all on their phones. They're all on their phones, and and it leads to, you know, it's like they posted it, now it's over, and then they move on. And 
there they got their selfie, whatever that means in the context of visiting those places. And and and, and the silence is gone. Hmm. All of a sudden, there's no reflection at all. It's all about putting it up and posting it and and and, and, and you know and projecting. It's about projecting. And then it's over because you've done it. Then that's considered your reaction. That's the reaction. In other words, there's no other possible response. Not only is there no other possible response, they can't imagine a world where if something happens and it's not posted. They can't imagine simple notions of privacy and personal dignity, right? It's just, you know, you ask a kid, well, why'd you put that online? They look at you as if you've asked them why they breathe. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They can't imagine because it's, it's as... It's as basic an instinct today to post as it is to breathe. They can't imagine the other. They can't imagine not. And the notions of privacy and dignity of reflection, it's all out the window. And that silence, that beautiful silence, after seeing something horrible, the silence where you know kids are thinking and being impacted. But again, it's not easy. So if you have a way to avoid it, you avoid it. And how do you avoid it? By posting. Right. Uh, because then, you, like you said, there's catharsis from the post. Yeah, that's it. It's over. So, and that's a painful, painful loss. So, you asked me about dating and somehow I got to the Holocaust. <laughs> no, I like that. I um, like that. <laughs> dating to the Holocaust. Here we go. <laughs> so, let me get back to the dating. I don't know. I don't understand it at all. I don't know how these kids connect. They don't connect. I, I don't get it. Um, but um, obviously, there's, you know, you know, too much of it is about the public right away. It, again, privacy, basic privacy. Uh, you know, and the kids are obviously exposed to stuff that, uh, you know, even your generation wasn't exposed to. Oh, I know. Uh, and, uh, and that's not always healthy. It's sometimes very unhealthy. And, um, but uh, I don't know. I, I see kids getting married later uh, than they used to, which I think is a bad thing um, for a whole host of reasons. I mean, I think for women especially, but I have an iconoclastic view on these things. So, I mean, I think women would be, in other words, they, women are obviously delaying marriage till they have a degree and delaying children till they settle in a career. And I understand that certainly it seems like a logical decision. But the women I know who've done it in the reverse, in other words, have their kids young, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then finish school or gone for their career they end up at the age of 45 with a much more balanced life. Right, right. You know, and and not- they end up remarkably successful in their careers and having, you know, kids at, at an age where they can really enjoy them later and have grandchildren that they can really enjoy. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think that, you know, there's almost social shaming that if you have kids young, it means you're a retrograde or you're not a feminist or you're not taking it. And the fact is, though, the women I see who've chosen, you know, to do children first and then emphasize career, again, end up with remarkably, you know, happy lives. Again, there's no perfect one size fits all solution for every night. You know, they you know, thank God we live in a world of choices. But um, but it's it, it's not we, we're not always making the best decisions for ourselves for the long term. Well, I liked what you said, and I want to go back to it about jobs and how it used to be that a job wasn't everything in your life, right? That, that, I mean, I, I don't know what actually the, the Jewish teaching is on this, but the Christian idea of vocation is different than, than the idea of a career. And somehow we seem to have mixed those up in our heads and we're, we're no longer, I mean, 
you what you do is who you are. That's what we say now, right? Like what you do for work is literally defines you. And and there's an element of truth to that. But I I'm just interested in in going into deeper than that because I have been very career driven all of my life, and I know Zach has too. And one of the things that I I, I mean I'm only 31, but I've, one of the conclusions I've come to is this is not what life is about, right? People are what life is about. But how do we, how do you change that mindset? Is it, maybe you can't change it. Maybe you can only change it in yourself. But like, how do we get people to realize that the things they're giving up for a quote unquote career are the very things that make life worth living? It's, it, it, you know, we've seen different political movements uh, rise and fall, be, be, be persuasive or be unpersuasive. But all along in the last 50 years, there's a, there are certain cultural trends. And I don't know if it's possible to really fight the culture. I don't know. And I don't say that out of pessimism. I just say that out of an understanding that ideas become embraced and it's very hard to buck the system and, and, to, and, and to defy the expectations of so many. It's hard to do. And, and the and the space to carve out that, that that power is more and more limited, and it's I don't know. It's very hard. I don't know how to, how we make the persuasive case anymore for family, faith, and community. It, it's it, I know that the people who embrace it feel certainly inspired by it and find deep meaning and joy and contentment in it, but those who scoff at it and the culture scoffs at it. It's tough to uh, it, it's it's tough to uh, it's tough to win that cultural battle. It's tough. And like even with the modern concept of work, these cubicle dwelling, paper pushing, you know, career driven people, and I we all know a lot of them. Um, how is this the thing you want to define your life by? Like, right. The question is, you ask somebody, you ask any normal person in the world, you go to somebody, and say, who are you? What, what do they answer? Is that what they do? Their profession. Yeah. Exactly. It's not, that's not, who are you? Is that my bank? I don't know, I'm a partner for whatever. Who are you? No, that's not who you are. No, no. <laughs> can you, you go, can you go into that deeper? Like, how, yeah. how would you, how, I, I, how do you define, like, I, the, the dignity, I get that, but like, what rubric should people use in their understanding of self apart from their vocation? First and foremost, listen, I mean, you know, if you're a deeply religious person, First thing you would say is, "Who are you?" Say, "I'm a Christian." Or, I'm a yeah, Jew. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm a teacher. I'm a Pittsburgh. I was born in Pittsburgh, so I'm a Steeler. Uh, I'm a Steeler te- teacher. So it basically, I, I found on the on Amazon a, a couple months ago, and it's perfect. It's an American flag, and it says, "God, family, Steelers." And, uh, <laughs> perfect. Right. Yes. <laughs> so that's about it. You know, that's really everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> Anyway, but, uh, uh, you know, who are you? That's the basic, who are you? And, you know, and I, you know, I, I'm, you know, depending on my mood that day, I might answer, I'm my father's and my mother's son. I might answer, I'm my kid's father. I'm, I might answer, I'm a Jew. You know, those are the things that are important. But it's always the same two or three things. Yeah. You know, it it yeah. may be different on Tuesday and Wednesday, but it's all the same stuff. I'm my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my wife's. Uh, husband, I'm my parents' uh, children. I'm my parents' son. 
and I'm a Jew and I'm a Canadian and I, uh, and, and I believe it, but that I, I you know, uh, who I am, I don't answer a rabbi. No. Right. Right. I love that. I absolutely love that because I think people are consumed with their identities right now individually. It's like they have to be unique in some way in order to feel a sense of validation. And I don't, to be honest, it seems very odd to me because I've been studying human psychology, sociology, basically my whole life. That's really what politics is, is trying to understand how people think and then how to be persuasive. And one of the things that has really shocked me is how actually lacking in difference people are. Right. We, we kind of all live the same pattern. Right. You know, born, adolescence, adulthood, old age. You got the old Shakespeare, you know, all the world's a stage and each man plays his part. But what do you think is causing this obsession with not just uniqueness? Because, I mean, obviously, there's a desire to be uniquely loved and special, like you pointed out, the, the inherent dignity of the Imago Deus. Right. But what... What do you think it is that people, is it because we're lost? Is it because we don't have communities and families? We're just longing for a sense of belonging or? There's a desperate need that many people have to feel unique. You know, I mean, that's why they named their children after furniture instead of their grandparents. <laughs> right, right, and, right. And, you know, they, they need to be different. I mean, God forbid you should, you know, I mean, you know, you want to stand out somehow. And you're right. It has to do with the idea that the normal things, the traditional things that gave people a sense of purpose and identity have been stripped away. So they're not looking for phony ways to do it, whether it's on Instagram or, or whatever. They have this desperate need to feel special. You should feel special because of how you live. You should feel special not, you know, because you acquired something or, I mean, it's about how you live. You're special because, you know, what family you're part of, what faith community you're part of. That was supposed to give you a sense of, identity and belonging and 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 when all that's stripped away you end up doing a lot of silly things to feel special because everyone wants to feel special i understand that but you know a healthier way to feel special is to be is to love and be loved in your family to, to feel you know a, a place in your in, in your church or synagogue that's how you feel special you know go help somebody you want to feel special go help somebody Yes, yes. You want to feel special? Do good for somebody else. You want to get out of your own head and your own depression? Go help somebody. There's no better therapy in the world than going out and helping other human beings. It is you better know? to give than to receive, right? I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world. People who live that way, who live a life of real generosity, care for other people, are the happiest people. Yeah, and I think in the void, uh, in, in as we pull religion out of societies, we pull community out of society. All the people are left with are themselves. And I think that's why people are unhappy because the worship is of the self and elevating the self now. And the mistake I think in that is that it is the community and the, and you know, if, if you're a religious person, person, the religion, but even just community outside of religion, that's where joy comes from. And I think that's what we're missing. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. You're absolutely right in this. Also, what it leads to is some really strange and bizarre things. Like, I mean, this notion of radical personal autonomy where everybody has a right. You know, it's just, it, it, it's not, a, these aren't healthy pathologies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just not healthy. And, uh, and we know 
we know who, who's healthy, but we're not allowed to say it. And we know that some choices are better than others, but we're not allowed to say it. You know, and 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 we know that very often the people who advocate for acceptance of radically different choices, they themselves lead very traditional lives. <laughs> That's so true. Have, it's you know, so it's, true. You know, and and it, it's almost as if they they signal their virtue by embracing tolerance for choices they themselves would never make make and would never allow their children to make but you know it's almost like they're using the the other as a, as guinea pigs in a, in, a, in, a, in a crazy social experiment well it it seems to me that a lot of this is just they've boiled everything down to power Right. If you if you look at what we're we're basically we're the, the the let's call it the zeitgeist, it's that everything is about power. Because if you look at at the right or the left, let's take America for example, they won't really even use the standards they use against their opponents against themselves. Right. They they no longer have a set of principles. They have red team, blue team, and everything that red team does is bad and everything that blue team does is good or vice versa right and like you said i love what you said at the beginning about politics in a sense becoming the new religion but do you think a big part of of that desire for identity comes from something way deeper in us like i there's a tribalism that just has existed since it seems the dawn of time a creation of us versus them and as a as a Jew, you've experienced the horrors of that. You know your people have experienced the horrors of that over and over again. But what do you think it is in the human condition that that forces us? It makes us want to have something to hate. I guess. Listen, you know everybody. I'll put it in terms of hockey. All right, right. I love yeah. that. <laughs> All right, I'll do hockey because I'm you know I'm a yeah. Hey, you know, let's, say let, let's, let's say you're a fan of the Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> yes, let's I'm say. not. <laughs> let's, 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 let's just let's, pretend. Let's, let's pretend. I won't. <laughs> so, so part of that identity is hating the Leafs. Right? I mean, uh, yes, you, yes. You, can't, you cannot be a half fan without hating the Leafs, right? <laughs> so everybody has a positive identity aspect of their identity and a negative. Who you are, but who you aren't. Ah. So, so, in other words, that's how people define themselves. I would prefer to live in a world where the who you are part is emphasized more than the who you aren't part. But we all have that in us. Like, who are you? So, for instance, Jews living in kids' Christian countries were always viewed as, oh, the people who aren't Christian. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, the people, right? But it, it, obviously, I prefer to be understood in, in my own terms. You know? Right. Yes. That's, yes. That's not who I, who I am not. But yes, there's, and, and, and for many people, the who you are part is so lacking that all they got left is who you aren't. Oh, I and, love that. I ooh, love that. That was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the problem. Too many people only have the who you aren't. And, um, and again, as you say, you know, Jews have, have certainly been victimized by that. You know, it's funny, you mentioned Anthony at the beginning of the conversation. So he asked me about the ritual of conversion. I told him right after he converts, he leaves the building. And we've hired 10 anti-Semites to yell at him as he leaves just to, you know, get him used to the new reality. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I figured, you know, we should well, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we should like, you know, jump right in. <laughs> but, uh, I, was, I was obviously kidding, but. Right, right, but, right. 
but uh, you know, it, uh, you know, it, I, and that's the hardest thing because what people don't understand about the who you are is that being too often the victim of that, it disfigures the victim. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really does. I mean, we know this on the individual level. We know that, you know, you abuse a child. We know the problem. The victim becomes the victimizer. And not only that, there's different aspects to it. Right. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the case of a child, that certainly happens all too frequently. But what the other part of this, the other part of that narrative is that the victimized end up thinking they deserve it. Yes. Yes. And 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 also they end up looking for love in all the wrong places. And also the other part of that, which is again part of the same, is that they think it's their obligation to solve the problem in the head of the abuse. In other words, they 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 take it upon their shoulders to cure the hatred of others. And, and Jews too often fall into that pathology of, of assuming on their own. I'll give you an example. All right. And I really shouldn't because it's a well-meaning lady. And just, I, just <laughs> hope, I hope all your listeners don't Google the story. Okay. Okay. You remember a few years, a couple of years ago, there was that horrific shooting in a uh, synagogue. In my yes. Hometown, yes. Uh, perpetrated by somebody who bought into the right-wing anti-Semitic idea that Jews were trying to replace white Christians with by bringing in immigrants. That whole crazy thing, Charlottesville, right? The Jews will not replace us. I think. Anyway, all right. Anyway, so he goes in because they were pro immigration, and, and he goes in and kills his people. And and what does a woman do? And she's celebrating the Jewish media for this. It's not, you know, uh, she uh, she had a slogan which I don't remember anymore about invite a non-Jew to your seder to your Passover meal, you know, to do outreach in response. Right. To, yeah. To, in response to Jews being killed. Our response should be reach out to a non-Jew to invite them to Seder. Now, if I said this program in a group of Jews, normal Jews in America, they would all nod. Oh, it's a great idea. No, it's a horrendously stupid idea. <laughs> it, yeah. It's a horrendously stupid idea. Horrendous. It implies that we're somehow complicit in the hate of others and that we have the ability by feeding somebody matzo ball soup to make them love us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. First of all, Half the matzo ball soup in the world is completely inedible unless they make it the way I do. But, but the point is, implicit in that is that we have the power to solve the problem of others. In other words, what other victimized community in the world would behave that way? After the murder of George Floyd, did black people say, oh, white people should come and join us in our churches? On Sunday no, world? no, they because do not. Because that will solve the problem. No, the victim doesn't have to, first of all, shouldn't have to assume on their own shoulders the burden of solving the hate of others. Number two, we don't have that power. No, no. Right? You want to solve your problem? The only thing a, per a victim of hate should think about is how do I protect myself? Yes, yes. How do I protect myself? If you And if, those I love. Right, in other words, right, exactly. You can't, you can't solve somebody else's hate. And, and, and too often the victim's of anti-Semitism thought that they could solve the problem of anti-Semitism. We can't because, and I'll tell you this very bluntly, anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem. No, no. <laughs> exactly. Anti-Semitism is an anti-Semite problem. <laughs> yes, yes. It's not a Jewish problem. We can't solve it. We didn't start it. We didn't cause it. And we can't solve it. And if we think we can solve it, 
implicit in that is that we caused it. Yes. Again, blaming the victim. So when the response to Pittsburgh is Jews should do more outreach, yeah, that's how a lot of Jews think. I have to tell you, that's how a lot of Jews think, but it's insane. Right. And and the reason it's insane, not just foolish, is because that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and thinking it'll be a different outcome. We've done this for several hundred years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not we've it's not gonna it. change. You know, we we we've reached out, we've done dialogue, all this stuff. No. You want you want to deal with people who hate you, defend yourself. That's all. And I would say to any community, your obligation is to defend yourself. Yes. Yes. You that's, I mean, it's the same with the, the that's what the Kurds are doing. The Kurds aren't sitting there being like, Oh, maybe we just need to befriend the Turks. They're like, No. Right. No, it's <laughs> just defend yourself and finish. That's it. And I don't mean I'm not talking about violence. I mean, think about ways to make sure. They can't touch you and they can't hurt you. They can't harm your children. They can't harm your schools. They can't harm your synagogues. Just protect yourself. The haters want it. Want, 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 you know, you can't be the hater's social work. No, that's no. not our job. And, and, and by the way, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, Probably, yeah. The anti Semite yeah. ain't coming to your Passover city. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they don't care. Yeah, that isn't going to convince the people that you need to convince to stop hating, right? It'll be someone who would who would, who would come anyway. <laughs> I think there's a word for that. It's called preaching to the converted. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, I love that. Wow. So we're running out of time here. We have about uh, ten more minutes. I I wanted to uh, reflect on a couple of things with you. This has been a phenomenal conversation, but what do you see as a few things that Canada could do? Uh, to achieve, uh, a, I guess I would say, a brighter destiny, uh, a better future? I, I don't think the government has that power or should have that power. I think the, the, the beginning of all wisdom <laughs> is simply to learn to study more. In other words, study history. Study where ideas come from. Look at societies that were successful. When I say successful, I don't mean financially. I mean successful in creating uh, communities uh, where people feel embraced and, and, and purposeful. And look at what works. Look at what works. If you're going to sit here in, in 2021 and condemn everything of the past because it doesn't live up to the new standards set by the administrators of Facebook or, or whatever, you're going to discount great civilizations of the past. There were there were incredibly beautiful ideas about you know the dignity of life and, and, and purpose, whether it's Aquinas or all Maimonides. Read, right? These are beautiful ideas. Don't listen to people who tell you, you know, if they're European and they're white and they're male, they must be, you know, discounted because they're coming from a place of privilege, which I don't understand. I don't know what those words even mean. So, uh, or, or you know, or, or you know, yeah, read about all diverse cultures. Read. Well, that's what I would. In, in other words, if you really learn the lessons of history, you read the lessons of people who led lives that were creative and, 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 and you know, and uh, and had a real impact. Read about the ideas that animate. Read about ideas. Read about these things and, and learn them. And uh, what I would also advise everyone. Is whatever Sabbath you have, go bananas. I mean, be a fanatic on Sabbath. Turn off your phone for twenty-four hours. Right? Yeah, get that time. Get that time of community and that oh, time of reflection. 
you know, you know, spend one day looking at people in the eye rather than at your phone. Spend oh, day I love that. I love you know, that. Spend a day doing that. You know, whatever it is, whether you're on Sabbath, it's Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, do your Sabbath, right? Because there is no one in my, in, oh, I know, and I know a lot of people who observe the Sabbath who regrets it. They right, all, right. Every single one of them. Pretty darn uh, I love it. Oh, and on the take seventh day, day, he rested. Yeah. Just take one day. And that's the whole, and here's the beauty of all of, of our face is that God creates a world that we get a day off. That is a gift. That is a gift. No, but how did that happen? I mean, what happened? And we, you know, God says, I read, you know, I created the world six days. I'm ready. Oh, so you take a day off. So, but, so, but that's the point is that inherent in creation is that we're creating the image of God. And because we're creating the image of God, for six days, yes, the world will judge us by what we do. But on one day, we're judged for who we are. Oh. And, and that's the Sabbath. Yes. The Sabbath is you don't, you don't have to do every day. You can just be. That's the Sabbath. Wow. The day, the day to just be. And, uh, you know, so I would ask people to read the history of ideas, and I would, I would encourage everybody to, to take unplug, a Sabbath. To unplug just for one day a week. Oh, I love that. Um, do you have, so do you have, what, what books would you point people to? Oh, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. I think there's so many books. <laughs> true, true. I, my office. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, here's, you know, uh, if you're looking for history, you know, uh, there's a great series on history. Will and Ariel Durant's, you know, uh, multi-volume. My late, my late mother would spend her time reading that, so. That comes to mind. I would ask them old ideas, and there are wonderful courses online on on the, on the old philosophers, whether it's Aristotle or, or Plato. Read, 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 read again, as I mentioned, Aquinas and great Christian thinkers, and read Kierkegaard. I mean, there's great stuff. There's great stuff to read. I mean, just just keep reading. And it's you know, and, and the main thing is don't read anybody who wrote anything in the last hundred years. Go read yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't need those. You don't. Read, I, I, read, I, I yeah. You, there's valuable stuff to read. Read that later. Read old stuff. I have, right? Yeah, on that point, I just want your thought, your your short thoughts on this idea of progressivism. I asked the idea of the march of history. Like, where do you think that comes from? This idea that like his, this idea that things are always going to improve. Basically, it's this weird concept that like on the right side of history. This is a phrase that's often used, right? It's like there is no right or wrong side to history. There's just history. <laughs> Right, I, I don't really I, I, listen. I listen. We we both come from traditions that hope for a better future. Yes, yes. You know, the, the messianic impulse, or whatever. <laughs> right, whatever right. Whatever you want to talk about, it. we both we, we share that. But you know, in my tradition, at least, we always taught faith in the Messiah, but then told people set it aside. Right, you, right. You don't live for the Messiah. Don't live even to bring the Messiah. Do things because they're right to do. Right? Messiah will take care of himself. And uh and God will take care of that. Now now live a meaningful life and lead a purposeful life, a good life, a generous life, a kind life. You know, um, we don't want people to be fixated on an idyllic vision of the future. We want people to appreciate the moment in which they're living and to bring as much purpose and goodness and faith to that moment. That's what we're looking for. And uh, this idea that there, 
It's not so much that they believe that but, uh, the right side is that it's the it's the bizarre you person thinking that you know. Yes, yes. I mean, what does that even mean? That oh yeah, there's the, there's we, yeah, we know what it is. Here's a piece of paper. There's a chart. This is the right to it. You know, you know the the arc is not whatever bends whatever all that stuff. Oh, you don't know. Live with some <laughs> yeah. Live, live, live with some doubt. The certainty. The certainty in too all political this you find and again and I hate to say it all. No, you do. You do definitely. There's certain, you know, I had this great rabbi, a great teacher of mine, long gone, who once said the following. He said it in Yiddish. He said, uh, small people are always certain. Great people have doubts. Wow. You know, and 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 you're allowed to have doubts. You know, and and you know, is that really the right way? Does this work? You know, just you know, it you know, have some doubt, like have some humility, you know, that you don't always know what's best for yourself or others. Have some humility, and, uh, and and have some humility in how you understand history and where you think history is going. Yeah, like the audacity of of thinking that you know what's good for everyone else. Uh, that's what I've I love what you said at the very beginning, and I guess we'll close with this: is government's not the answer. Government will never be the answer. And if someone tells you government the an- is the answer, they have an ulterior motive. I, you know. It, it can't be the answer. It can't be the answer. Government should be limited to what is what is necessary, and to do the things that citizens cannot do on their own, which is you know build highways and build an army and whatever, but to make sure the the aspirin is, is not poisoned. And you know, but uh, it should be limited. It should be limited because whenever government does, some freedom is compromised, and 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 as as it is passed over this week. We can't forget that human dignity, human dignity demands human freedom. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. All right. uh, thank you for your wisdom. Really appreciate it. Uh, Have a happy Easter. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, happy Passover to you. Um, or what do you guys, I guess you don't say happy Passover. Yeah, we say happy Passover. Okay. <laughs> good, good. We're well, a lot thank- of the happy couple <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and, and thank you for, uh, the wisdom that you've imparted to my friend, Anthony. I know he, he has a lot of respect for you. So. Anyway, be well. Thank you for listening to the Canadian story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the CAD story. That's the CAD story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.